Well, good morning. It's so good to be able to preach standing up again, rather than talking to you from the sofa as I have been doing. Um, This week I took the boys for lunch at Weatherspoons in town to try and experience what it's like to visit a public space under the latest government guidelines. Uh, It is good to see that some things are starting to open up again, but the experience is still far from normal. So please continue to pray that there isn't a uh, resurgence of the virus and that we will be able to enjoy increasing liberty as the weeks roll on. Being here in this room just makes me long all the more that you were all here with me. But we're going to turn to God's word now and uh, we are in Mark chapter 14 which was read earlier. So please get that in front of you if that's possible and we will begin with prayer now. Father, we simply ask now that you would feed us from your word as we hear it together. Let us understand the truths contained within it and help us to hide these things in our hearts. Show us the glory of your son. Make us more like him, we pray. Amen. Well, Thomas Cranmer was a remarkable man. He was also a very gifted scholar. He was instrumental in aiding the reformation of England. King Henry VIII recognised his potential and enlisted his help in confronting the Pope, albeit in the matter of of, uh, his divorce from his wife, uh, Catherine of Aragon. Cranmer held, you see, that the scriptures were the highest authority and rule for the church. And he wanted to see a church in our country free from papal control, where services were conducted in the language of the people. We should praise God for the the reformers who achieved that in this land. Henry protected Cranmer from his Catholic enemies that were in the church. And uh, he also helped the cause of the Reformation to advance greatly through these men. But Edward VI, the next king, who had been raised as a child, uh, a Protestant, only lived to reign for six years before dying aged only 15. And Mary I, also known as some of you will be aware as Bloody Mary, took to the throne of England. Mary was a Catholic and she was a Catholic with a grudge because she was also the daughter of the much maligned Catherine. Clearly, Thomas Cranmer's days were numbered. Mary was on the rampage and in her short five-year reign, she set about burning as many of the reformers as she could. Almost 300 of them lost their lives. Cranmer was arrested and he was imprisoned for two years. He watched his fellow prisoners, Latimer and Ridley, as they met their end, burned at the stake. And then finally, worn down by the horror of what awaited him, day after day, with death over his head, uh, he caved and recanted of all that he had lived for and defended once again acknowledging the Pope as the head of the church. He signed a document to say so. 
uh, and he agreed that uh, outside of the Catholic Church there was no salvation. He put his name to documents that said that. Under normal circumstances, this might have saved his life, but Mary wasn't having it. She declared him to be beyond pardon, and the date was set for his execution once again. It was a disaster for Cranmer. Cranmer was given one further opportunity on the day of his death to publicly recant of all that he believed and had written. It was the 21st of March, 1556. That day, he stood in St Mary's Church in Oxford before a great crowd of nobles and justices and commoners. The church was packed and much of what Cranmer preached was fully in line with the teachings of the Church of Rome. But then at the end, he paused. And Fox's Book of Martyrs, that well-known record of the martyrs of the Christian faith, records the following about Cranmer. This is what he said. And now I come to the great thing which so troubleth my conscience more than anything that ever I did or said in my whole life. And that is the setting abroad of writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart and written for fear of death and to save my life if it might be. And that is all such bills and papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation, wherein I have written many things untrue. And for as much as my hand has offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall be burned first. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. And as for the sacrament, I believe as I have taught in my book against the Bishop of Winchester. Fox continues, upon the conclusion of this unexpected declaration, amazement and indignation were conspicuous in every part of the church. The Catholics were completely foiled. Their object being frustrated, Cranmer, like Samson, having completed a greater ruin upon his enemies in the hour of his death than he did in his life. Well, Cranmer was taken to the funeral pyre and uh, was chained tightly to the pole. The fire was lit and the flames began to ascend. Fox records, then were the glorious sentiments of the martyr made manifest. Then it was that stretching out his right hand, he held it unshrinkingly in the fire till it burned to a cinder, even before his body was injured, frequently exclaiming, this unworthy right hand, apparently insensible of pain, with a countenance of venerable resignation and eyes directed to him for whose cause he suffered. He continued, like St. Stephen, to say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, 
till the fury of the flames terminated his powers of utterance and existence. Wow. I mean, that's a great story to read, and I encourage you to read about all of the English reformers and the brave things that they did. You know, it's hard to imagine the pressure that these martyrs of the English Reformation endured. And it's no surprise that men like Thomas Cranmer stumbled as they did along the way. Do you ever think to yourself, uh, as I know I do, if violent persecution broke out against the church in this country once again, I wonder how I would fare under that pressure. Would I go to my death like those martyrs did? Or would I break, would I crack under the pressure? The passage we're looking at this morning is all about being tested and put under pressure. A great key verse here is verse 38, look, where Jesus warns his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. See, we might have all the best intentions, but when the pressure is turned up, will we remain standing firm or will we crack? Our flesh our body, our physical makeup as human beings, says Jesus, is vulnerable. And therefore, we must watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. That's really the lesson this morning, isn't it? And it's a powerful one. This morning, we will divide this section that we've just read up into three parts. The boast, the battle and the breaking point. So take a look with me at verse 26 as we start together. When they had sung a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall, even if all fall away, I will not. Now, we've just left the upper room where Jesus has celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. He's ended the meal, you remember, by taking bread and taking a cup of wine, which he's blessed and shared with the group. And he's told them that these two things, the bread and the cup, represent to them his body given for them and his blood poured out for them. And though they probably didn't completely understand what Jesus was saying at this point, I guess it all added to the general feeling of unease around that table. Being as Jesus has just previously told them, one of their number is a traitor. And so now they travel together a short walk to the Mount of Olives in the warm evening air. And here Jesus tells them again, quite bluntly, that they are all, every one of them, going to fall. They're going to fall away. And he quotes from the prophet Zechariah, look, where God uses the picture of a shepherd with his sheep. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. That's the picture. And it's a pretty uh, graphic and clear picture, isn't it? Imagine a shepherd out on the hills with his flock. And suddenly a great bear appears from out of nowhere and attacks the shepherd. He's thrown down 
and he's underneath that snarling, ferocious beast. What will the sheep do? Uh, you know, they're not going to try and front up to the bear, are they, those little sheep? Their instincts will kick in. You know, their flesh will take over. They will run off in every direction and with wide eyes and bleating. Jesus is telling his disciples that despite the fact that they are loyal disciples, they are obedient sheep, something's about to happen that will cause every one of them to fall. They will all of them scatter. And he's telling them that he knows this is exactly what they're going to do. But that, according to verse 28, after he has been struck down, he will get up again. And they are going to reunite in Galilee. That's quite encouraging. Again, this is a clear prediction of what lies ahead just around the corner. The death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus knows the limits of his sheep, which should be of great comfort to us as well. And likewise, should have been a great comfort to the twelve there with him. But Peter's having nothing of it. Even if all fall away, I will not, he boasts. This lot here, you know, they might give way under pressure. And to be honest, it wouldn't surprise me if they did. But not Pete, not me, not Peter, not the rock. He's going to keep his nerve. He's going to stay by his master's side. He's convinced of it. But Jesus continues. I tell you the truth, verse 30. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. I guess uh, they were honest enough to want that included, that they all made the same kind of a boast. But I wonder if we would have done the same if we were there. Probably we would. It seems the evidence seems to indicate it, doesn't it? Because it's very easy to sit down on your sofa and tell yourself, I'm strong, I'm loyal, I would not fail my Lord and Saviour. Others, you know, they might sin. People have got their weaknesses, haven't they? And we look at weak people who are always falling. We think, yeah, them, but not me. Others might be vulnerable to certain areas of temptation, but I've got those areas under control. I'm on top of it. I'm a rock. You know, this is dangerous ground to be standing on. And that's what this story proves to us, isn't it? It's a lesson every one of Jesus' disciples needs to learn. Pride, complacency comes before a fall. And Peter in particular, this very night that we're talking about here, is going to fall so hard that he's going to find it very hard to get back up again. We'll look at more of that next week when it happens. But we need to remember that as fallen human beings... We are all, each of us, vulnerable to tripping, to stumbling, to falling. It's why Jesus kept on repeating. Do you remember in that story at the end of the last chapter, chapter 13, that story about the absent master and the servants awaiting his return? Jesus keeps saying throughout the story, keep watch, be alert, 
be on guard. And he finishes with that warning, doesn't he? Don't be caught sleeping. There are times when the attack can be so strong against us. And perhaps you've experienced that when temptation seems so intense against you. And this night will be one such time for the disciples. In fact, in Luke's account, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Notice in Jesus saying that, the truth that in all our temptations, in every attack of the evil one against God's people, God still reigns. Never forget that. Satan, even there, has to ask permission. He sought this out. He wants this. And God will only allow what is for our good, that which will refine us, that which will bring us forth like purified gold, gone through the heat and coming through more precious, more beautiful. But we must never overestimate our ability to stand on our own. Rather, we should turn to the one who has actually proved himself to be unbreakable. And that's what we do now. It's in the next section. Have a look at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here whilst I pray. He took his uh, disciples, Peter, James and John, along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. In these short verses, we get a glimpse of Jesus engaging in the fight of his life. We often think, don't we, I guess, that the physical trauma of the cross must have been the hardest thing to bear. But it was not the thorns. It was not the scourging from the Roman whips or the nails driven into his hands and his feet that filled Jesus with dread, though he knew it was all coming. It was not the affliction of his body, but that of his soul that brought him to breaking point. Luke records that as Jesus prayed here in the garden, the anguish he went through caused physiological effects to his body. Blood entered into his sweat. Such was the emotional strain that his body was enduring. What was it that caused Jesus this huge distress, the one normally so in control, to be so distressed? Well, verse 36, interestingly, and perhaps slightly enigmatically, describes it as a cup. What's he talking about? Well, to find that out, you need to go back and quickly look at the Old Testament part of the Bible. You see, 600 years earlier, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of the cup as a picture 
of a container full of the furious anger of God. Listen to what he wrote. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send amongst them. Do you get that? The cup is filled to the brim with the wine of God's wrath. And that is also true of the cup Jesus is talking about. See, God is angry at the wickedness of the nations of the world. And so in this picture language, he says he's going to send Jeremiah with this cup of his wrath. And he's going to make, make them drink it. You know, hold their nose, force them to swallow down the contents of this cup. And the results of drinking this wrath are shocking. Listen to what uh, the prophet continues to say. At that time, those slain by the Lord will be everywhere, from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be mourned or gathered up or buried, but will lie like refuse lying on the ground. You see the picture? Bodies, corpses everywhere. It's dreadfully powerful picture language, isn't it? Can you see it in your mind's eye? You probably don't want to try too hard. It's a horror. Rotting bodies covering the ground from one end of the earth to the other. No one to mourn them, no one to bury them, or even to pile them up out of the way. They lie like refuse, like rubbish, turning to compost on the ground. Now, please don't go having nightmares. But, but I do want you to get this. Same as the prophet wanted people to get it. This picture shows us that God does not think your sins, the things that you do, that you shouldn't do, the things you don't do that you should do, he doesn't think that any of those things are trivial. When you ignore the God who has given you your life and your breath and every good thing that you have, and you just dismiss him, when you shut him out of your life and pre prefer other things to him, when you decide that you would rather go after and give yourself to money and career and friends and fame and, and any other idols, which is what those are, rather than to have him. And when you disobey all the commands and prompts of your conscience that he's given you, when you do that, you are storing up God's right anger against you. And the day will come, make no mistake, when he will see perfect justice done. You know, those little sins that we think that God isn't going to make a fuss about are in actual fact the constant drip, drip, dripping that are filling up that cup of wrath. Jesus, the Son of God, with absolute control of everything around him, he's there in the garden and the very thought of this cup makes him plead that if there's any other way. See, Jesus the very next day is going to be drinking that cup and draining it to the very last drop. And he's going to be doing it on behalf of every sinner and every rebel, every man, woman and child who has put their trust in him.
And even though he knows what is coming, staggeringly, he doesn't try to get out of it. If, if he, the Son of God, with all of his power, is distressed about the thought of drinking that cup, more distressed about that than he is about the whip and the cross and everything that awaits him, then how would you cope? How would I cope with drinking it? That is not something we want to even contemplate, is it? Because the simple truth is that either he drinks that cup on your or my behalf, or one day you and I will have to drink our own share of it for ourselves. So won't you come to Jesus? Won't you put your trust in him as your saviour? As the one who's willing to take your place? We are so weak, but he is strong. He's the strong one, strong enough to face that cup and to say to his father that if there's no other way to save us, then not my will, but yours be done. Staggering love, staggering strength. He's strong on our behalf. Will you trust him? The weakness of the human condition is now underlined in the verses that close our section this morning. Take a look with me, verse 37. And he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It is telling, isn't it, that Jesus brings Peter, James and John with him to pray. Each one of those men has specifically boasted of their strength. You remember? James and John were asked by Jesus when they, come, they came asking for the best seats in the kingdom. He said, Jesus said to them, can you drink my cup? Yes, they replied. And then Peter with his insistence, you know, everyone else might fail, but not me. And yet when Jesus most needs their support, they fail him because they are but mere men and weak. You know, it's a parody of our own experience, isn't it, that we see here? Whilst Jesus fights the fight of his life, his disciples can barely stay conscious. He fights for them. He fights for us, wrestling, blood, sweat and tears, whilst they, whilst we, doze happily in our comfortable existence. And this sin is not completely intentional, is it? But it is avoidable. If only, says Jesus, we would watch and pray. Watch. Be aware that your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's what James says, do you remember? So daily, even in lockdown, brothers and sisters, we must put on the armour of God. We must clothe ourselves in the truths of the gospel 
and meditate on what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's the only way we will stay strong. And we must pray. Prayer, as one person illustrated, illustrated it, ought not to be used, as it often is, simply as an intercom, to ask room service to bring more cushions and more comforts to us. Rather, prayer should be seen as a field radio for soldiers in the trenches, calling for backup, calling for reinforcements and essential supplies. That's what prayer is, isn't it? If we just realised our weakness and our need, surely we would be more fervent in prayer. And so we must pray that God would help us to see our constant need of him. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you that Jesus drank that bitter cup for us. And we pray right now that you would help us to realise our weaknesses. That we are but flesh and bone, vulnerable to all manner of temptation, liable to fall. And that, the, that we would then humbly turn to you for help and to you for strength each day, to, to keep watch, to be alert, to be busy serving and to be ever and always ready for Christ's return. In whose good name we pray. Amen.